0: It has been a great morning already, and uh, we get to continue now uh, in going to the Word of God together. Uh, as I said at the beginning of this service, uh, this is the beginning of our Advent celebration here at Rocky Point Baptist Church. And uh, you may think, well, beginning? I mean, Christmas decorations have been for sale at Walmart since the middle of October. Like, isn't this kind of a little late to the game here? But uh, but Advent is more than just a, a retail holiday season. It's more than just an extended celebration of Christmas, even. Advent is a season in which we anticipate the arrival of the Messiah. God, through his prophets, we find this in the Old Testament, promised that he would send a Messiah. He promised that he would send a king in the line of David who would once and for all conquer the enemies of his people, who would once and for all establish God's perfect righteous reign on the earth, would restore creation to the original purpose that he had for it, and for years, God's people held on to these promises of a Messiah and anticipated that day when the Messiah would come. And in Advent, we identify with those who were longing for the coming of Jesus, longing for the coming of the Messiah. We identify with them in this season of anticipating the arrival of Jesus. You could see on the screen. Uh, that our series title uh, for this Advent season is called Expecting Mercy. And we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke. In fact, I'd ask you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 1. This title comes from the fact that at the time of these early events that Luke records in his Gospel, even though the Roman Empire was ruling and oppressing the people of Israel. Even though the Jewish leaders at the time were corrupt and pursued political expediency instead of faithfulness to God's word, even though there was widespread unbelief among God's people, there were still those faithful worshipers of God who were righteous, who were following the commands of the Lord, who were anticipating. That God would send the Messiah. They hadn't forgotten about his promise. Even though God had been silent for hundreds of years at this point. They had not forgotten about the promise. They expected that God would send mercy through Jesus Christ. Though they didn't know what the name of this child would be. uh, They anticipated the Messiah. They anticipated God would send mercy. They were expecting mercy. And that's where we get the title of this series. So, as we turn to Luke chapter 1, what we find in these opening chapters, uh, Luke begins his gospel by interweaving the stories of John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, and Jesus Christ himself, the Messiah. In our text this morning, it's going to be Luke 1, 1-25, where we see the birth of John the Baptist foretold. So, would you read with me, starting in verse 1 of Luke chapter 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, He was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until that day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, Would you pray with me? God, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful that you inspired men men like Luke to carefully write a reliable account of these things. That we may worship you through reading these words. That we may worship you through the preaching of these words. That we may worship you through seeing your character on display in these words. And living according to the truth found in these words. God, we need you as we seek to hear your voice on these pages this morning. We need you. Would you fill us with your spirit? Would you open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word today? And may our hearts be turned to trust your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I believe this morning from this text that the Lord wants to turn our hearts to trust. His word. To turn our hearts to trust his word. Let's look to the text together. Let's walk through it and see uh, the truth and the character of God on display in these verses. Uh, in the opening verses, verses 1 to 4 of Luke chapter 1, they serve as really an introduction to Luke's gospel. He's writing because there's some incredible things that have been accomplished among us, he says. And he's writing to Theophilus because he has received eyewitness testimony. He has received these stories from eyewitnesses who are ministers of the Word. And so he wanted to write an orderly account of these things. And look at verse 4. Here's the purpose why he's writing. That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. You've been taught about these things. You've heard about these things. Well, let me tell you. I've got eyewitness testimony. I've got ministers of the word talking to me. I have compiled an orderly account. I want you to know that you know that you know. These things are not just nice or helpful, but they're true. This is real history, real people, a real God at work. And for those of us today who are now sitting under the preaching of this text, of this Bible, hearing this account, God's voice speaking to us, we can have certainty today that what we're looking at, it's real history, real people, and the same real God who is at work on the pages and the stories of this text is the same God who's at work among us right now. Our story begins in verse 5. The scene opens with the home of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And Luke tells us three things about Zechariah and Elizabeth. First of all, it tells us about Zechariah's role. He was a priest, which meant he was a representative of God to the people of God, but he was also to represent the people of God before God in his service in the temple. The second thing that Luke tells us about Zechariah and Elizabeth is about their character. They were righteous before God, it says in verse 6, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But he also tells us a third thing in verse 7, that there's a source of shame in their life. They had no child. Elizabeth was barren. They were both advanced in years. But we know That they were not childless because they were unrighteous. What we know is that they were childless because God had a purpose for this. God had a purpose for their shame. He had a purpose for this moment that he is about to accomplish. The scene shifts in verse 8 from the home of Zechariah and Elizabeth to outside the temple. Where Zechariah served as priest. The, uh, the Levitical priests were divided uh, into different divisions that rotated the temple responsibilities, the different services. One of those was to burn incense in the morning and the evening. And the text tells us, in verse 9, that Zechariah was chosen by Lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. But I would remind you of Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Yeah, a lot was cast. But God chose Zechariah to come into the temple this day. Because God had a purpose for Zechariah's service in the temple this day. The scene then shifts in verse 11 to the inside of the temple. Where the angel appears to Zechariah and he's terrified. But it doesn't last long because the angel says, I've got good news. The angel has good news first of all. In verse 13, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Can you imagine an angel coming to you and saying your prayer is? is heard. And this deep longing of your soul is about to be satisfied. God has heard you and he's giving you a gracious gift. But it gets better than that. In verse 14, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink Wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. This is words of of dedication. This child was to be devoted to the service of the Lord. It affected his behavior, what he could drink. It affected also the fact that God would fill him with the Holy Spirit for a special task. This isn't just a child for Zechariah and Elizabeth, this is a special, anointed child for a special purpose that God has. But it gets even better than that. What is the special purpose that he has? In verse 16, the angel says this, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. The angel is quoting here from Malachi Chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. And there's a couple things that are significant about this. First of all, these are the very last words penned by the prophet Malachi. And as best we know, these were the last words that God had spoken through a prophet for nearly 400 years. For 400 years, after this promise of a forerunner for the Messiah, God was silent. And then the next word that God sent was through this angel to fulfill that very promise that he had made hundreds of years ago. But listen also to the content of this promise that God is fulfilling through John. He is an Elijah-like figure. He is coming with a message of repentance for the purpose of preparing the way for the Messiah. You see this elijah like figure coming and giving this message of repentance to prepare the way you know that the messiah is right behind him and so this is good news that god is fulfilling his word he is accomplishing his great plan of redemption to send his messiah this is the first step toward god's amazing work of redemption so this angel brings great news But then look at how Zechariah responds. How shall I know this? Verse 18. How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. We know from the verses that follow that these aren't just innocent words of curiosity. Now, sadly, these are words of unbelief. Zechariah, in the face of a promise from an angel of the Lord sees with natural eyes. He isn't believing the word of God about him fulfilling his redemptive purposes. He isn't believing the word about this special anointed child because he can't even get past the idea that God could ever even give him a child in the first place because I'm too old. My wife's too old. Why should I believe what you're telling me? Well, The angel tells him exactly why he should believe what he's telling him. In verse 19, the angel says, I am Gabriel. This isn't just any angel. Someone like Zechariah, who, as we know, was righteous before God and walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. He was a priest. When he says, I am Gabriel, Zechariah would know who he's standing with now. Gabriel was an angel that God had sent previously to the prophet Daniel to foretell the coming of the Messiah. This is a trustworthy messenger of God standing before Zechariah. And then look at the rest of his description of his identity. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. He's not just making this stuff up. He's bringing, he's delivering a message directly from the throne. That's why you should believe me, Zechariah. But then look at the result of Zechariah's unbelief in verse 20. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So because Zechariah, Didn't believe the words that Gabriel spoke, Zechariah wouldn't be able to speak any words until the words that Gabriel spoke were going to be fulfilled. So then the the scene shifts again from inside the temple back to outside the temple in verse 21. The people are waiting, they're wondering, what's taking you so long, Zechariah? They're waiting for their representative. And when he comes out, the text tells us that they know he's seen a vision from God. And how tragic is it that the representative of God to the people can't tell them what God told him because of his unbelief. Not only that, isn't isn't it interesting that Zechariah received a word from God? didn't believe it, and as a, as a result, he was made unable to speak. He was, as a result, given a word from God, you will be unable to speak, and then instantly that word was fulfilled. Do you think he believed that word? <laughs> he kept making signs to them, but he remained mute. It's a sad scene. Well, then in verse 23, the scene shifts back again to the home of Zechariah and Elizabeth where we started. And again, we see God's word through Gabriel fulfilled. After these days, verse 24, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. The good news is that Zechariah's unbelief did nothing to thwart God's plan. It did nothing to stop God's word from being fulfilled. As Gabriel said, they will be fulfilled in their time. And right here before us, they are fulfilled. So we see Zechariah, the representative of the people of God, who is righteous before God had a source of shame, childlessness. Serving in the temple by God's sovereign selection. An angel comes to him, gives him good news that their prayer would be answered, that they would have a son who is devoted to the Lord, that God's word would be fulfilled, that his plan of redemption is being accomplished. But Zechariah responds with unbelief. And the angel who is a trustworthy messenger of God, promises that Zechariah will be silenced, and he was. And he promises still that the son would come, and he did. Fortunately, Zechariah's unbelief did not last long, as we'll see later in Luke chapter 1. But it's appropriate that Zechariah, as a priest, was a representative of the people of God because his unbelief that he expresses, his lack of faith in the word of God that he was demonstrating is reflective, is representative of a widespread unbelief that Luke records throughout his gospel among the Jewish people of this day. It's this same lack of faith In the word of God, the same looking through natural eyes and and missing God's purposes that we see in Luke 4, for instance, when Jesus opens up the scroll of Isaiah in the synagogue, and he says, after reading, he closes it and he says, these words are fulfilled in your hearing today. And they're like, isn't this this Joseph's son? They look through natural eyes and miss God's word being fulfilled right in front of them. It's the same unbelief that Jesus talks about when he tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus and if you remember Lazarus or rather the the rich man is being tormented in Hades and he begs Abraham would you send Lazarus from the dead back to my brothers to tell them to warn them that this is coming but Abraham says if if they've got the law and the prophets they've got Moses if they don't believe God's word they won't even believe if someone should rise from the dead it's that lack of faith in God's word looking through natural eyes that we see again it's the same lack of faith and looking through natural eyes that comes up again in Luke 23 as Jesus is on the cross and in the account that Luke gives Jesus is fulfilling scripture over and over as lots are cast again uh, in Luke 23 as his side is pierced as he says my God my God why have you forsaken me over and over, Scripture is being fulfilled before the Jewish leaders who know all these Scriptures, but they're just mocking him and scoffing him, saying, If you're the Christ, save yourself. They look through natural eyes and miss the Word of God fulfilled right in front of them. It's the same unbelief. We see in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus as Jesus is talking to the two disciples. And it's this unbelief that, that leads him to say, oh foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the scriptures have said. Wasn't it necessary that the Christ should die and, be, and go into his glory? Again, they, they couldn't see past the, the natural. They were looking with natural eyes, and they had a lack of faith in God's word. What he said would be true. Well, we too demonstrate the same lack of faith in God's word sometimes, don't we? We know what God's word says, and, and maybe we would even say, of course I believe that. Of course it's true. We know What God's word says. But but by our actions, we reveal that we don't actually trust that what God really said is true is really true. We know that Romans 6 tells us that we've been set free from sin. That we're no longer slaves to sin, but we're slaves to righteousness if we're in Christ. But we still find ourselves saying things like, I just, I couldn't help it. Oh, that's just, that's just who I am. I, I, you know, I've tried and I, just, I, can't, I can't help it. That's, that's just who I am. We know that God's word says in Galatians 6.1 that if someone is caught in a transgression, we should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. But we are tempted often to look with natural eyes and say, they'll never change. It'll never work. They'll never be restored. We know God's word from John 4 that Jesus says the the fields are white for the harvest. But when it comes to the task of evangelism, we often think with natural eyes and say, oh, but they'll, they'll never listen to me. We know God's word in John 15. Jesus says, ask. If my words abide in you, ask anything, and it'll be given to you. But we find ourselves wondering, is is this even even getting through? Is there even any point to praying? Is, Is anything worthwhile happening at all? We know in Revelation 22, the words of Jesus, I am coming soon, and yet we live as if Jesus isn't coming back again. We live as if we've got all the time in the world, we live as if we're the Lord of our own life. and We often live as if we are only seeing through natural eyes rather than trusting that what God's word said is true really is true. But as I said in the beginning, I believe from this text that God this morning wants to turn our hearts to trust his word. I believe God wants to fuel our faith through this text. And I see in this text three reasons at least why we should trust God's word. Reason number one why we should trust God's word from this text? Because we have a powerful God who is able to keep his word. We have a powerful God who is able to keep his word. Verse 22 we see the word that Gabriel gave to Zechariah about him being silenced, fulfilled. God said it and it happened instantly because God is able to do what he says he'll do. His word is effective. It's the God who spoke and there was light. It's the God who made man's mouth, he tells Moses. And then, of course, the biggest way in this text that God shows that he is a powerful God who's able to keep his word is in the conception of John. Even though Zechariah and Elizabeth were advanced in age, even though Elizabeth was barren, nothing can stop the God who is able to keep his word. He fulfills his word right here in this text. Not only the word that he gave through Gabriel, but the word that he gave through Malachi, that he would send a forerunner before the Messiah. God proves in this text that he is able to keep his word as we see him in this text, in this reliable account, fulfilling his word before the eyes of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And this same God who was able to fulfill this word, that there would be a forerunner of the Messiah, is also the God who promised that the virgin would conceive And bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. And he kept that word too. And every time we celebrate Christmas, every time we sing these carols, we're reminded that just as Christmas is true, so we can trust God's word today. Christmas is a reminder that God is able to keep his word. The same God promised in Isaiah 53 5. That this Messiah would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And he kept that word too. Every time we look at the cross, every time we rehearse the gospel, we're reminded that we have a God who is powerful and able to keep his word. This same God spoke through David in Psalm 1610 and foresaw the resurrection of Jesus, saying that you will not let your Holy One see corruption And he fulfilled that word too. Every time we think about the empty tomb, which is still empty today, by the way, it is a reminder to us that God is powerful and he's able to keep his word. And the same God promised through Joel in Joel chapter 2 that he would send his spirit. And we have now, as followers of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit in us, who every time we exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, every time that we, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, we have a reminder in ourselves that we have a God who is powerful and able to keep His Word. The fulfillment of God's Word lives inside of us now. And so if this God can do that, if this God can bring life out of the deadness of Elizabeth's womb, we can trust him to bring life out of our friends and family members who are dead in their sins. Not because we're able, but because he's able. This God who promised that the Messiah would rise and conquer the grave is able to help you gain victory over sin. Not because you're strong, but because he is able. Because the same God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And he's also able to preserve you. The God who was able to keep his word to sin, Jesus, if he did not spare his son, how will he not also with him richly give us all Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised. He is able to keep us and nothing can separate us from his love. He's able to keep his word. Reason number two from this text, why we can trust God's word? Because we have a sovereign God who is redeeming. We have a sovereign God who is redeeming. In verses 16 and 17, we see Gabriel tell Zechariah that this child that God would supernaturally give to him would be fulfilling part of God's grand plan to redeem his people. Part of his grand plan to put his glory on display. But Zechariah misses it. Zechariah looks through natural eyes and he can't even see this great news that God is telling him through his messenger Gabriel because he can't look past this natural thing. Well, I'm too old. My wife's too old. We can't have a child. And he misses God's grand plan that he is at work accomplishing among Zechariah. Too, Too old. Too old to bear a child. Zechariah. Don't you remember Sarah? Don't you remember that even though Sarah was so old, she laughed when she heard that she was going to have a child, God still supernaturally gave Sarah a child. Nothing can stop our Redeemer from accomplishing his plan of redemption. Zechariah, don't don't you remember that this is the God who parted the Red Sea to save the army of Israel from the Egyptians? too old nothing can stop our redeemer as we've seen isn't don't you remember that this is the god who stirred the heart of cyrus to send the people of israel from exile back to the promised land too, too old nothing can stop our redeemer zechariah do you know who you're talking about do you realize what god is up to among you he is the powerful redeemer who has a plan a sovereign work that he is accomplishing don't miss it don't miss what god is up to god is still up to something god is still at work to redeem his plan is still being accomplished among us and in us and through us turn with me to luke 24 we talked about this before Jesus told the disciples on the road to Emmaus that his death was the fulfillment of Scripture. They should have known that what they had seen was the fulfillment of Scripture. And then he tells his disciples in verse 45, and 46 rather, something similar. He says in verse 46 to his disciples, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is the plan. This is the plan that God is working right now, still. He has this, plan of kingdom expansion that's been rolling out from jerusalem and concentric circles and it's come all the way to us and god is still working this plan he is up to something huge he's redeeming dead souls bringing them to life in christ and we know how the story ends in revelation chapter 7 John says, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. This plan is at work right now and it will be accomplished. God is at work to redeem. And I would say to you, as I would love to say to Zechariah, don't miss what God is up to by looking through natural eyes. Well, what does that, what does that mean? How, how do we look through natural eyes and miss God's plan of redemption? Well, there's a couple of ways I think we do this. One, we lose sight of God's supernatural plan of salvation and look at natural eyes, and, and we live for this world. We live for today. We know, as we said, Jesus is coming soon, that his word... It's true, but we live as if he's not coming back. We live for today. We live for ourselves. We pursue the things of this world. Because this is what we can see. It's what we can touch and feel. And it's easy if we aren't reminding ourselves regularly of the gospel. If we're not reminding ourselves regularly of God's plan of redemption that he is at work right now. That we can lose sight. Start living for this world. Miss what God is up to. And I would say from this text, don't miss it. God is at work to redeem. And he is inviting us to come into this plan. He's inviting us to be agents of redemption and reconciliation. Don't settle for this world. There's a God who has a world to come. And he has invited all of us who are in Christ to be agents of reconciliation that we might fill that world with people from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. The other way I think we can look with natural eyes and lose sight of what God is doing in his grand plan of redemption is by losing heart. The longer that we live in this fallen world, the more we experience pain and suffering and longing and groaning with creation. Because, see, on the one side, there's the element of this world that's, that's appealing and that, that draws us away, that tempts us away from God's grand plan of redemption. But then there's also this part of this world that is painful, that is about, that's, leads us to groaning. And, and if, we get, if we lose sight of what God's up to, we can lose heart. We can become discouraged. But I would remind you of Paul's words in Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for good, for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And he tells us in verse 29 what that good end is. He's making us like Christ. So don't lose heart. God is up to something huge. He is up to a plan to redeem. And that pain that you're experiencing, the suffering that you're experiencing as you groan with this creation, is intended by God for a purpose. Just like he had a purpose for Zechariah and Elizabeth's pain, so he has a purpose for your pain. And ultimately, that purpose is to make you more like Jesus. And what greater joy is that? Our God is up to something huge. And redeeming through Jesus Christ. Don't miss it. Reason number three. If we turn back to Luke chapter 1. Reason number three from this text. Why we can trust God's word. Is because we have a merciful God. Who cares for us. We have a merciful God who cares for us. Yes, we have a God who is who is powerful. He's able to keep his word. He has this grand plan of redemption, a cosmic proportions. But we also see in this text a God who is merciful, who looks down on one couple who's walked with the Lord who has for years experienced shame, pain, longing. They've prayed And in verse 13, he says, Your prayer has been heard. In verse 25, Elizabeth says that the Lord has looked on me, He has taken away my reproach. And then in in verse 14, if we go back there, He's given them joy. God, as He was accomplishing His sovereign grand plan for His glory with His might, was also caring for His children and showing them mercy. And so I would remind you that we can trust this God, we can trust His word, we know. That he will do what he says he will do. We can trust him because he cares for us. We have a merciful God who cares for us. And what was the greatest way that he demonstrated his care for us? God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you ever doubt God is trustworthy. If you ever doubt that God cares about you, just take one look at the cross. At the cross, we see God demonstrate his love for us. I would also encourage you with Jesus' words from Luke chapter 12. Consider the lilies, how they grow They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom. And these things will be added to you. If you're in Christ, if you've turned from your sin, trusted in His saving work, you have a Father in heaven who loves you, who cares about you, who, as we said before, is working all things for the good that is making you more like Jesus. He cares for you so Ask in prayer. Go to Him in faith. Trust Him that He is able. Seek His kingdom and His righteousness. You don't have to lose heart. God cares for you. Trust Him because He's a merciful God who cares for us. We have a powerful God who's able to keep His word. We have a sovereign God who is redeeming And we have a merciful God who cares for us. May we trust him. May we trust his word. And live each day for his glory. And in his sovereign care. That he works for us through our savior Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, your word is true. And Lord, we're grateful that you are a God who cares about us enough to speak to us through your word, to demonstrate your character through your word. As you fulfill your word, as you work your plan of redemption, and as you care for individuals. Lord, you are a never-changing God, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, Lord, may we trust you today in our longing, in our struggle, in this life, in this world, Lord, until that day when Jesus comes back, just as he said he would, Lord. May we trust your word and trust you for because you are good and you are holding on to us. We love you. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.